Well, thanks for joining us. It's awesome to be opening God's Word today. We're in Matthew chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now, as we read this sermon, or we're going to read the text, actually, as we go through the sermon. But you'll notice that as we read, it's not your traditional Father's Day text. Um, I kind of, is that really loud or is it just me? I could just hear myself really clearly. That's nice. Um, I'd actually plan, I didn't look, I forgot about Father's Day. Um, And so as I was planning out the Matthew series, I looked last week and went, oh my goodness, the text that I've chosen for today is Herod killing all the infants in Bethlehem. That's a terrible Father's Day text. What have I done? But then in two weeks' time, we're doing baptisms on our first year anniversary, and it's Jesus' baptism. And I was like, that's just too good an opportunity to mess up. So I was like, what am I going to do? And I thought, do I just cancel doing this sermon and do a generic kind of Father's Day message or something? But um, Richard actually had the idea of, no, no, just do it. And so if it's terrible, it's all Richard's fault. And that's, yeah, that's my introduction. No, uh, Basically, it's, it's an accidental Father's Day text, but do you know what? As I studied this passage with Father's Day in mind, I actually saw the text in a totally different light because it's actually a story about two fathers. You've got God the Father protecting God the Son, and you've got Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, protecting his son. And so it's almost like God's sovereign or something and that he placed this text on this day. Um, and so we're actually going to see today, it is a Father's Day sermon. There's a lot we can learn about God the Father um, and in ourselves as fathers for those of us who are. Um, and the main one point I want us to get out of today is this. Um, I want us to see God's fatherly protection of his child for his children. The main point we're going to see today is God's fatherly protection of his child and for his children. Why don't you pray with me and then we will jump in. Lord, we want to ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got three points today. I just, I just want to go through this text quite simply. The first point will be longer because I'm going to basically just try and explain the whole text and run our way through it, read it through it, explain it. And that first point is I want us to see God's fatherly protection. And then in the final two points, I want us to kind of apply it and see what it means. So point number two will be rest in God's fatherly protection. And point number three, imitate God's fatherly protection. So see rest and imitate. So point number one, see God's fatherly protection. For those of you who weren't with us last week, we were in the famous story of the, the Magi or, you know, the, in, the, in the old carol, the three kings that visit Jesus on the night of his birth. Um, and we saw the, the, the great story of the, 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 the star guiding them into Jesus' hometown. We saw the rage of Herod at this usurper king that's coming into his throne. Uh, and we saw that these wise men had the appropriate response to who Jesus is. They saw him as king. They saw him as the promised one that you know, is in the Old Testament scriptures. And they bowed down before him. They paid him gifts. They gave him gold and frankincense and myrrh, these kingly gifts. In, you know, in opposite response to how Jerusalem and Herod, they respond by being troubled and afraid and wanting to put Jesus to death. 
And in that desire for them to put Jesus to death, um, like Herod has, has hatched this plan that basically he's going to send the wise men out to get, you know, find out about Jesus so he can worship him. But basically he wants Jesus to be put away with. Um, and so that's where we pick up the story. And we're going to read verses 13 to 15. So let's, we're going to read through Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Now when they, that is the wise men, the magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remain there until the death of Herod. This was, to this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So the, the narrative today begins with this drama. You know, immediately after these wise men leave, you know, they go to bed. You know, it, it seems like it's the same night. Joseph and Mary go to bed. You know, the gold and frankincense and myrrh are out there. Like, what, what just happened? This is crazy. And... Behold, you know, instantly, you know, so to speak, this angel appears to Joseph in a dream. The last time and the first time that Joseph had had an angel in the dream was when the angel had told him that Mary was actually pregnant with God, um, the saviour of all the people of the world, um, and that he shouldn't divorce her. And, you know, so far that was proving to be true. You've got these wise men that travelled all these lands and distances. And so he gets a dream again, and he, it comes with this warning. Get up. Flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Why? Because Herod, the king, is coming to kill your baby, who is the real king. And note too Joseph's immediate obedience. Um, he gets up, leaves while it is still night, immediately goes out and travels this massive 150-mile minimum journey by foot southwest down into Egypt, um, which we have an Egyptian brother here, Joseph, represent. They go down into your, your hood, looked after Jesus. Thank you for that. I'm not sure that's appropriate. Let's just move on. Hi, Joe. Um, so you've got this scene of like Joseph and Mary. They've just had the kings come or the wise men come. And now suddenly they're on the run. They're fleeing. They, they take their gold and frankincense and myrrh with them. And they start walking by night. I can't imagine what that feeling would be like. The, the terror, the fear, the anxiety, your new little baby, like... Your first, their first-time parents. Could you imagine as a first-time parent walking 150 miles on your own into a new country where you know no one? Incredible. Incredible that Joseph just gets up and immediately obeys. It would be the equivalent of us walking to Canberra. So go to bed tonight, wake up, and then wake up tomorrow morning and walk to Canberra. Just along the Hume Highway on your own. Not going to happen. And Matthew interprets... Um, Oh, Matthew, the gospel writer, interprets why the Lord did this. This wasn't just mere protection of his son Jesus. As we're going to see all throughout the book of Matthew, all these narrative events that happen aren't just like, and this is the next thing that happened, and this is the next thing that happened. There's actually more going on. Jesus is fulfilling all these ideas and prophecies and predictions that happen in the Old Testament. And that is one such one that we have here. You notice at the end of verse 15, it says that, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. 
Now, Egypt is very big in the Israel story. Um, you know, God had come to Abraham, promised him a land. They end up as slaves in Egypt. And so they're not in the land that God had promised them. And they had to be delivered or they needed an exodus out of Egypt. And God miraculously does this through the work of Moses and Aaron and, you know, the, the plagues on the Pharaoh and the passing through the sea and eventually getting into the promised land. And so when Matthew brings up this point that Jesus is out of Egypt, I called my son, he's bringing up the great Exodus story. And he's putting in our minds as acute and careful readers that Jesus is going to bring about a new Exodus. You see, the people of God are still in exile, in a sense. They're in their land, but they're not really in their land. They're still chained to sin. They're not truly free like they ought to be. And so Matthew here is saying already, look, Jesus is like a new Moses being attacked by a new Pharaoh. If you know the story of Moses, he was you know, meant to be put to death at birth. And so Matthew is painting this Old Testament picture of deliverance for the people of God, coming through a boy, Moses, Jesus, coming out of Egypt so that he can bring deliverance to God's people. And it actually fulfills a prophecy that was in Hosea 11, which is where it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So Matthew's giving us a little head nod and saying, get ready. We're going to see a theme that's going to develop throughout the rest of my book about Jesus. Jesus is the new Moses, the greater deliverer, the one who will rescue his people. Jesus is bringing about a new exodus. He's going to take his people out of slavery and into the promised land. But it's all going to be a spiritual reality and not just a physical one. And so Matthew brings us this new theme. And we get to see, we're going to see as we go through the book, a new law, a new and true Israel, and a better Moses. It's all coming, but that's for later on. So the first thing I want us to see here is just note God's fatherly protection of his child. In the night, he comes to Joseph in a dream. It's costly, it's expensive, it's dangerous, but God is watching over his son. But note too, he's protecting his son for his children. He protects Jesus, and we're going to see it's for us. But let's go on. Matthew continues in the story in verse 16. This is the, you know, the, the not very nice Father's Day moment. Then Herod, or King Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now Bethlehem so we can get this picture in our mind, it's only a small town. So it's likely about 15 to 20 boys that were slaughtered. Still a tragedy, still an absolute devastation for those people. And Matthew tells this story, not just because it's a sad moment, a part of it, but it's actually a part of an Old Testament prophecy again. You see this this King Herod, you know, is trying to destroy God's people to bring about you know, the destruction of Israel and the plans of God. But actually, 
Matthew sees in it a fulfillment of what's in um, the book of Jeremiah. There we go. I just had to turn my page. I was about to say Hosea, but that was our last one. You see, he's quoting Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 31 is this great passage of Israel being condemned into exile, but actually full of hope because it's the passage where we learn that a new covenant is coming, a new covenant, a new way of relating to God again. And so it says in that passage that, you know, Rachel should stop weeping, um, that a voice, a, a cry has come out of Ramah because God's children have been exiled. Um, and at that time when Jeremiah was writing, you know, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem, the Babylonians came in, they took Jerusalem and they took all the exiles out north, out of Jerusalem. And the first big town that they pass as they come out of Jerusalem is Ramah. And that's where, coincidentally, where Rachel, the, the, fa- uh, the father, the mother um, of Jacob had been bo- um, di- uh, buried. There you go, mixing it all up. Had been buried. And so it figuratively, as like the figurative mother of all Israel, as the sons of Israel are taken into exile into Babylon, she weeps. Obviously, she's long dead, but it's this figurative, beautiful, poetic moment of Rachel weeping as the children go out into exile. But Matthew brings up that verse as a fulfillment of that passage for this reason. I think Don Carson says it well. This is the reason why this passage fulfills that. The tears of the exile are now being fulfilled, i.e., the tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. So in that original story, the sons were leaving and Rachel is weeping. And now, as the Son of God leaves that town and, and the chil- the Rachel weeps once more, but now the tears are over. The tears are done because the exile is about to end because Jesus is going to bring all of God's children from all the lands of the earth back home in himself. And so Matthew brings it up to basically say, the exile's over, the tears can end. Let's go on to the next section, next section, verses 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So again, we we now zoom back into Egypt and Joseph has been waiting there. We don't know how long. Um, You know, it could have been a number of months, a number of years. Um, We don't know exactly how long it is. But he receives again this angelic visitation, this revelation from God that the danger has passed. Um, We assume he needed an angel. They didn't have, like, you know, Twitter. He couldn't just be, oh, Herod's dead. It's safe to go home. Needed an angel. Gets the message. And again, has to take a massive step of obedience and faith. 
has to pack up his child and his life and whatever you know normalcy they had created in Egypt, they now have to pick up sticks again and move out. They have to walk another 150 miles, 250 k's from Canberra back to Sydney to establish their life again. And you notice too that Joseph is not just, you know, he, he's actually a wise father. He gets back into the area and realizes that not all is safe just to be back in Bethlehem, in the Judean area. He kind of applies wisdom and thinks, this ain't good. Archelaus is ruling. If his father was one, trying to kill our son, we're going to move somewhere else. God confirms that with another dream and warns them and moves them along. And that's how Jesus ends up in Nazareth. Now, it's important um, for Matthew to tell this part of the story because everyone in that day and time who knew of Jesus knew Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, that's how we still call Jesus today. In history and everything like that, we call him Jesus of Nazareth. So in this whole chapter, Matthew's been kind of piecing together that Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you've heard about, you know, the miracle worker, the one that died on the cross and rose again. But he's also Jesus of Bethlehem, the one who's linked to David's throne. And so Matthew's kind of putting together a geographic apologetic. And it meant a lot to the people in the time. It doesn't mean so much to us now, but we just want to see that's why it's all here. That's what he's trying to get together. But even more than that, Matthew has this extra point at the end here. He sees this fulfillment to a prophecy that's never prophesied. So read verse 24 with me again. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you look through all the Old Testament, you'll never find once the word Nazareth or a prediction that Jesus will live in Nazareth. Um, and so what, what's going on here? Why, why bring this up? Basically, the best guess that we can make of this prophetic fulfillment is that actually it's, it's a typology that Jesus fulfills the type of person who would be a Nazarene. Now, to no understand that, you need to understand a Nazarene person. So Nazareth was sort of like whatever the most hick sort of area, like Dubbo or something like that. Sorry to anyone from Dubbo that loves Dubbo, but if you introduced yourself to me and said, hey, I'm from Dubbo, I'd be like, I'd count your teeth, and, you know, something like that. Okay, sorry. Um, but that's what it was like to say you were from Nazareth, okay? It wasn't like Bethlehem, the city of David, or Jerusalem, you know, the other city of David. It was Dubbo, okay? Not very pretty, and so there's actually a, one strand of prophetic fulfillment in the Old Testament that Jesus will be king. You know, the Messiah will be royal and powerful. That's the Bethlehem bit. But there's another strand of prophetic fulfillment that the that this Messiah will be a suffering servant. That he won't be very attractive or very, um, you know, worldly, you know, rich in that sense. Uh, and so that's, I think, what Matthew's picking up on here. He moves to Nazareth so that he will be called a Nazarene. He becomes a hick. He goes to the backwaters. He goes to a nothing place. Um, and obviously, he brings a lot of dignity to that place. And then he lives in relative obscurity for the next 30 years or so, being a tradesman. Listen to what, the Isaiah, what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 and see how Jesus fulfills it by being a Nazarene. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Like for those who don't know much about, you know, planting stuff, you don't really want to plant stuff in dry ground. You want rich, moist, compact, not compacted, composted soil. 
He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, from, um, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a Nazarene. Listen to what Philip says, um, no, what Nathaniel says when he finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth in John 1. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also all the prophets spoke about, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Nathanael came and see and becomes a follower of Jesus. And so you see how you know, Jesus fulfills this prophetic thing, that he'll be the royal king and a Nazarene, that he identifies with being the Lord of all and the lowest of all at the same time. In fact, Jesus demonstrates his kingly authority and magisterial greatness by being despised, hated, rejected, and esteemed not. Jesus is a hard one to figure out because he he blows apart all of our preconceptions. And so if you put it all together in chapter 1 and 2 in this story, Matthew's been painting this picture, okay? He's been trying to teach us who Jesus is. The upshot is that Jesus is the king, the Messiah. He's the son of Abraham, which means he's the one that's going to bring blessing to all the nations. He's the son of David, the promised Christ, the savior from our sins. He's God's son. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's the new Moses and the new Israel, bringing about a new exodus and a new law. He's the Messiah. He's here for his people. The exile is over and hope has come. That's the main idea that Matthew's trying to communicate in these first two chapters. But as I studied this in light of Father's Day, I also saw another point, and the point that I began with, that not only is Matthew painting this theological picture, but here we see another point, another beautiful picture. We see God the Father and his fatherly protection over his son, Jesus. And we see that God protects his son, Jesus, for the sake of his children. All these stories, all these prophetic fulfillments, all this heartache and tragedy and you know, ups and downs in the life of Jesus Christ are all planned by the Father, protected, he's kept alive, so that Jesus can die on the cross for our sins, to make us children of God. God the Father protects the Son so that He can welcome you and I as sons and daughters into His kingdom. You see, God's protection of Jesus doesn't last all the way. Jesus is hung on a cross. He's tormented. He's spat upon. He's abandoned. He's derided. And He's punished by the Lord. God protects His Son in this passage so that we can be protected by God the Father in the end. It's a beautiful image of God's grace that he would despise himself to welcome us in. He would become a Nazarene so that we could become, you know, royal line of King David. He orchestrates every angelic visitation. He, you know, he blings up his son with gold and frankincense and myrrh. He takes him down into Egypt and back again. 
ultimately, all for us, all for his children, to bring us in from all the lost corners of the earth. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See the gospel even in this passage. Jesus becomes a refugee in a strange land so that we can dwell securely in God's kingdom. Jesus brings about a new exodus to free us from slavery to sin and the harsh dictatorship of of Satan. Jesus ends the exile of God's people. Rachel's tears are no more because her children, God's children, are being brought home. We have received adoption because Jesus was scorned and despised as a Nazarene so that we can be welcomed in and have the inheritance of the Son. We're children of God because of the Son of God. And we ought not to lose sight of that on this Father's Day. We have a heavenly Father because He protected His Son so that we could be brought in. We are in and with Christ as a result. And so happy Father's Day. (laughs) Because of this story, we can actually have a heavenly Father's Day in a sense. And we ought to rejoice in that. And that leads me to my next two points. So the first point was this. We need to see God's fatherly protection of his son or of his child so that we can become his children. He protects his child for his children. But the second point is, I want us to see this. I want us to, sorry, rest in God's fatherly protection. So we've seen that God is a protector and that he's been providing for us. I think the appropriate response and where I felt led to lead us today was this, to rest in his protection. Isn't that what we do as children when we have a good father? There's security in his presence. There's calm in his presence there's a sense of like when dad's around it'll be okay you know even with my children when they're afraid of the dark and things like that when i'm with them they're not half as afraid because the father is present with them they can be at rest and so this father's day as you reflect on your heavenly father i want you to rest in his sovereign care over your soul and your life Rest knowing that nothing escapes his gaze. Rest knowing that no plot or plan against you is outside of his control. We may question or be confused as to how the Father writes the chapters of our story. But we know that he's a good author. And for his children, he writes comedies and not tragedies. Even if some of our chapters take a dark turn. And as we see the story, you know, this passage in verses 16 to 18, we see a horrible moment. The death of all these children in Bethlehem. And we think, 
you know, where was God there? Where, where was God in these moments of suffering and pain in our life? But what this passage teaches us is that although we may not fully understand everything that the Lord is getting done, we can rest assured knowing He is getting His sovereign will done. We can rest that He has a plan. We can rest that He's in control. And we can rest knowing that He has sent His Son to take all the spiritual evil that we deserve so that there's only good coming our way. Are you resting in God's fatherly protection in your life at the moment? Or are you looking to other sources? Are you looking elsewhere for that sense of rest? Netflix rest. (laughs) Wine time rest. Holiday rest. Friendship rest. Romance rest. Food, you know, for me, it's Friday night, Lebanese. You know, that's my rest. It's like I get to the end of Friday and then, ah, chicken shawarma. You know, (laughs) that's my rest. Where are you going to for rest? We see here that we have a heavenly father who sent his son to protect us so that we can be brought in. Friends, go to your father for rest this Father's Day. Rest in his sovereign care, his unshakable promises, and his undying goodness to you. His protection does not equal no trouble. His protection does not mean that no problems will happen in your life. Just look at the Bethlehem boys, those mothers, those fathers that had to endure that terrible suffering. But we know that he has given us the greatest protection from the greatest enemy we could ever face. We have spiritual protection from the enemy of Satan, sin, and death. And so we can rest in him because he's already protected us from the worst things. Even though it may be hard to trust him in the ups and downs of our life. And fathers, I want to speak to you for a moment and ask you and implore you to rest in your heavenly father this Father's Day. You see, God knows the responsibility that you bear. God knows the burdens that you carry as a father. The fears, the anxieties, the toil, the hard work. You know, that feeling of always being on, like you... you're always on. You never can just be totally at rest because your dad, your leader, your father, your provider, your protector, God knows your station. He knows your position and he put you there. Rest in him. Knowing that you are not fathering alone. That you have a heavenly father that is able to provide, protect and be present for your children even when you fail. And he's there with you as you fail. You're never alone. Rest in his fatherly protection, friends. Receive it as a gift. Treasure it today afresh. Rejoice in your father this Father's Day. And trust him. Even if you cannot understand what he is doing in your life in this time. So that was point number two. Rest in God's fatherly protection 
And finally, point number three. I also saw in this passage that there's a chance for us to imitate God's fatherly protection. So we see his protection. He protects his son. He leads Joseph and and Jesus is protected. He protects his children through ultimately removing his protection from Jesus. Um, We see that we can rest in his protection. But I think, fathers, we also ought to imitate God's fatherly protection. I don't know um, what you have imitated most in your father. There were lots of things, but lots of mannerisms. What we still say, as me and my brothers, you know, a clean house is a happy house. <laughs> a mowed lawn is a happy lawn. A clean car is a happy car, you know. And then we just find all other things. There's lots of little idioms and expressions and, you know, habits, good and bad. But as we look to figuring out how to be a father, the, you know, the ultimate father we're to look to is God, our heavenly father. But there's also a sense in which there's a lot of help in finding earthly models to help us. And I think, weirdly enough, as I studied this passage, I actually thought Joseph is a great model of God's heavenly father protection. Um, and so I just wanted to put to you kind of two ways in which we can learn and imitate God's fatherly protection through Joseph. You see, God wanted to protect his son Jesus, but God always uses agents for his work. So he puts Joseph in place as Jesus' earthly father to execute his will that Jesus would be protected and taken to Egypt and back into Israel again. And God has put you and I in that position as fathers, as the earthly agent of his protection over his children. Because our children are not ultimately our children, they're his. And so he gives us this job, like he gave Joseph, to look after his kids. So I want to share two ways in which I think the Lord led Joseph that we can learn from to actually apply in our parenting. Two ways. Way number one, we protect our children by receiving revelation. We protect our children by receiving revelation. If you slow down and look at it, Joseph would have gone to sleep that night after this you know, awesome Magi visit and woken up to the sound of the death of his son had an angel not visit him. Joseph needed divine revelation to know the danger, the physical danger that was coming to his son Jesus. But as we've already said today, the greatest danger in our lives and in the lives of our children is spiritual danger. It's spiritual evil. And as fathers, the only way we can protect our children from spiritual evil is by divine revelation, is by God's holy word. Joseph was dependent upon an angelic visitation. We are dependent upon God's word to be able to protect our kids. If we ever want to protect our kids from the greatest evils in this world, more than, you know, health and clothing and schooling and education, we need his word. We need to be receivers. We need to be submitted to God's revelation as fathers. And in his word, we learn of the spiritual danger of disobedience that our children are born into. We learn of the spiritual danger of their sinful hearts. We learn of the spiritual danger of worldly temptation that would come to our children. And the spiritual dangers of worldly influence. Without God's word, we won't be able to discern what is going on in our children and actively and appropriately and effectively protect them. And so just like Joseph, if we want to 
you know, Joseph imitating God, we can imitate Joseph and protect our children by receiving revelation. We need it. And secondly, we protect our children by responding to revelation. We protect our children by responding to revelation. We need to receive revelation. We need to be under God's word and we need to respond to it. We need to do stuff. <laughs> if Joseph didn't get up in the night and walk to Egypt and you know, Canberra, Jesus wouldn't have lived. Jesus was a human fleshly baby born into the cares and troubles of life. Joseph had to act and so do we. We need to respond with obedience and do what the Bible says to be examples to our children of what it looks like to be a fully formed follower of Jesus. We need to teach them the ways of the Lord and actually do what God has called us to do in the Scriptures. But we also need to respond with wisdom. There's many paths and parts of life and chapters in our stories where we won't know exactly what is the right thing to do. There's no chapter and verse. And we need to, like Joseph did when he got back into Israel, he kind of smelt, you know, the threat of Archelaus. And he was like, this ain't good. I'm not going to live back in Bethlehem. I'm, I'm going to go back to Nazareth, you know, where our hometown, where Mary and I are from. We're going to go back there. He applied wisdom. He was thoughtful. He was discerning. And God confirmed it through another angelic dream. And so we too need to show that wisdom. We need to think about our kids and look and decide, uh, that TV show, that party, that friend, you know, that influence, that school, that person, that's just not right. There's a wisdom part to our responding to God's revelation that will protect our children from spiritual evil. And ultimately and finally, fathers, you know, I said there was two, but there's actually three. We protect our children by relying on God, um, which is obvious here. We, re we need revelation. We must respond to revelation. But in and of yourself, Dad, you can't do it. Joseph couldn't do it. He needed God, and so do we. We are hopeless at protecting our children without God's leading of us. And so, like I said in point number two, rest in His fatherly protection. Don't try and do it on your own. Your kids need a better dad than you. My kids need a better dad than me. And by God's grace, they've got one, a heavenly father. He's going to use us, but we need to trust in him, rely on him, and not try and make it happen all on our own. So, putting it all together in this accidental Father's Day text, we've seen God's fatherly protection of his child for his children. We get to rest, all of us, fathers or not, you know, as sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have the Holy Spirit in us crying out, Abba, Father. So rest in your Father. And to the dads, imitate your Father. Protect your children. Receive and respond to revelation, trusting in God who cares for them sovereignly and always for good. Would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you that your word speaks to all circumstances and situations. I want to thank you that your word is fresh and that we can see things that we'd never seen before. That your word is sufficient 
able to equip us with everything we need for life and godliness. God, we want to thank you that you protected your son Jesus that night and over that period of time so that we could be called sons and daughters of you. Help us to be filled with joy at that unspeakable privilege. I'm a son. I'm a daughter of the Heavenly Father. Help us to rest in you. Our souls are often full of anxiety. We're so prone to turn elsewhere for rest and comfort, Lord. We want to confess that. We're sinners. We're weak and we need you. Be our rest today, even just for the rest of the day. Please, Lord, help us to rest in you. And for us as fathers, Lord, I pray and ask that you'd help us to imitate you. To protect our children from spiritual evil and danger. To be men of the word and doers of the word, dependent upon you. We pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen.